that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. Yeah, so uh, my name is Jeff Greenberg, and I'm a, I'm a social psychologist. I'm a regents professor at the University of Arizona. Did an undergrad psych major at Penn, and then I went to SMU and got a master's degree in social psychology. Then I got a PhD at the University of Kansas, and I've been here at the University of Arizona since uh, 1982. Long freaking time. I study... Uh, issues re- relating to how people cope with the awareness of the mortality and, uh, and some other existential concerns. Perfect, Jeff. So as our podcast is called I'm Immortal, it's a little bit of a play on words, trying to say immortal. So what does the word immortal or immortality mean to you? It means having a belief that there's something more than just the life that ends with death, that there's some, some aspect of one's existence that continues beyond your physical death. So if you were given a chance to, I guess, potentially have your existence extended past death, would you take that opportunity? Would you choose to be immortal or have your life extended? Uh, Yes, absolutely. If you're offering, yeah, I'm in. (laughs) Perfect. That's what we like to hear. (laughs) Yeah, well, hopefully, I don't know, you can do other things there. Unless you plan to do two PhDs, but one is already enough, right? Yeah, one, yeah, one, one is plenty for sure. You know? And obviously, yeah, obviously, issues arise. Hopefully, we'll get into some of those as we continue. Yeah, of course. If I was going to expand a little bit, it just said, I mean, you know, you could logically think about why that wouldn't make sense, why that might not be possible, why it might even not even be enjoyable. But uh, yeah, at, at my core, I'll take it for sure. So I think you briefly mentioned in your introduction that you look into how topics such as death and other realities of existence affect how we act and how we behave. What is it in your journey that inspired you to even go towards that? Was it something you always wanted to do since you were young? Well, yeah, I mean, it could be a long story. I'll try to keep it short. Yeah, I've always been interested in just human behavior. I remember being like five, six years old, raised in the South Bronx. And just, I always felt kind of an outsider to, to life, to humanity, and just like watching people and thinking about people and I noticed a couple of propensities in people that, that I thought were interesting. One was that everybody's sort of ego-driven. Everybody's like, everybody always thinks they're right, at least in my family. Everybody always thinks they're right or, or always, always think they're smarter than everybody else. Uh, so I think that's interesting. And I also started to see you know, prejudice and see how people seem to react negatively to those who look different than themselves. I think in, my, in the neighborhood I was growing up in, they were starting to be more African-American folks in our neighborhood. And I saw some of the reactions to that. And I was always, you know, it never made sense to me to be that way. From kindergarten through second grade, there were two other kids in the class named Jeff, and they were both African-Americans. So we were kind of buddies because I'm an egomaniac. So anybody named Jeff is cool. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so I was always interested in So I thought, okay, well, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be the next Freud and all that kind of stuff. And so I did, in fact, you know, end up at Penn and majored in psychology. I also remember reading 12th grade, reading uh, Gulliver's Travels. That changed my life because that was like this guy who died in the 1700s saw humans the same way I did and understood them the same way I did. And that kind of spurred me on. 
when I majored in psych, I found that psychology, for the most part, wasn't what I thought it was. It was taught in a very biological way and a kind of a mechanistic way, and it was very fragmented into different areas. I didn't find, you know, why are people prejudiced? Why are people so ego-driven? And until my last semester of college, I took social psychology. I was like, whoa, at least this field is trying to ask those kinds of questions. And so I said, let me try to get into a grad school in social psych. Just applied the master's programs, didn't have any letters of recommendation, didn't know what I was doing. Luckily, got into, uh, because of my quantitative DRE score, I, was, I got into a master's program at SMU because they wanted somebody to come and, and teach the other grad students uh, about statistics. So I got in that way. And then once I got there, I realized, yeah, this is interesting. I can do experiments, change people's situations, see how they react to it, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, went to grad school, studied self-serving biases, how people kind of protect their self-esteem, studied a little bit about prejudice and some of the kind of consequences of prejudice and stereotyping, and finished the PhD and realized that whatever I was studying, I wasn't getting at answers to the questions that I was really interested in. I met a couple of buddies there, Sheldon Solomon and Tom Pazinski, who were also grad students at University of Kansas. I went there after I got my master's. And, you know, we knew something was missing. We didn't know what it was. And we decided to start reading things outside of social psychology to see if anybody had written some stuff that would give us some answers to these sort of core questions of why people are so driven by their need for self-esteem, why people are so prone to prejudice, and, and why intergroup conflict is such a prevalent uh, phenomenon over the course of history. And uh, it was Sheldon who first stumbled into um, the books of Ernest Becker. He called me up one day and said, I got, it. I got somebody with some answers. I'm going to send you this book, read it. He sent me a copy of uh, Becker's book, The Denial of Death which won a Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction in 1973 or 74. I read it and it, it kind of changed my life in both good and bad ways. So I think that the, the point of my story, I think, would be that I'm not interested in death. I'm interested in understanding why people behave the way they do. But when I read The Denial of Death, what I came to understand, thanks to Becker, was that a lot of what people are doing has a lot to do with their awareness of their mortality and how they try to deny that. And so he made this really compelling case that our awareness of our mortality drives a lot of what we do and specifically a lot of the bad things that we do, a lot of the intergroup conflict and prejudice and a lot of the sort of self-serving aspects of the way we, we engage with other people and with the world. So that's how I got to death. And when you read, when you read a book like Denial of Death, it makes you think about death in a way that you probably haven't for many years. It did make me remind me of when I was, I don't know, 11, 10, 11, 12 years old. I remember like Sunday, for some reason, Sunday nights, for some reason, I don't know why, I would have these little existential thoughts in my head about, you know, wait a minute, my parents are going to die. I'm going to die. What the hell is this thing called life? Why are we in it? But then I, you know, I buried it, and it really didn't come back up until I read Becker. So then my focus started shifted to this idea, and how could we kind of explore this idea empirically? Because I'm an empirical scientist. That's how I was trained in graduate school, and that sort of guided much of my my career since then. 
first of all, thank you for sharing with us your educational background. It's interesting that you, you encountered or you had these sort of thoughts so young, but I know people throw around the words TMT or sorry, terror management theory quite a lot. Like we've had a lot of guests mention it, but we'd like to hear from, you know, one of the originators themselves. What is terror management theory? Before I do that, let me just say that we all mistakenly think that we don't think about death until we're older. What the research suggests, Irvin Yalom in his great book, Existential Psychotherapy, uh, cites some of this work. Kids start asking about death and worrying about death between ages three and five. And it's interesting, I read that and then I had kids and then sure enough, there's my daughter asking me about death and crying about the fact that her grandfather was dead, three years old. So we probably all go through that. Then we bury it, which is kind of an ironic way to say it. Oh, <laughs> mental defenses, yeah. Yeah, right. We put it away, right? And then it you know, crops up once in a blue moon. For me, like I said, it cropped up. Because then there is somewhere between, I'd say, between 7 and 12, it finally dawns on you that not only you know, do your goldfish die and maybe your grandparents, but you as well. And we all come to that realization. And it's interesting, actually, that most of us, and we actually did this little study on this, most of us don't remember the moment we first realized that, that we're going to die. But it had to happen, right? And it had to be pretty significant. Yeah. So it's sort of interesting that the majority, I think about, about one third of people, if you ask them, will claim that they remember the first moment when they realized that they were going to die. So I just wanted to, to throw that out there before we get into So actually, I want to follow up on one sure. more thing then before we get there, which was, because just we're on the topic of, of children thinking about death. I think I remember when I first realized death was a thing. But is there any research on not when you first encounter death, but once you encounter it for the first time, do most children tend to have some mental defense that shoves it in the back of their brain and they don't think about it until much later? Or do you gradually think about death more and more? Like, what's the pattern in terms of how often you think about death throughout your life? Yeah, well, I, don't, I mean, I don't think we have a lot of knowledge about that. If you ask kids at different ages about death, you can see some of the defenses that, that they use. Now, between three and five, when they start thinking about it, worrying about it, it's more, you know, some, some of them think about it as it's like sleep. Obviously, a lot of them have already been told that, well, well, then you go to heaven or you go some other great place. So a lot of the sort of simple kinds of, of defenses you already see between ages three and five. But the three to five-year-old doesn't realize that it's an inevitability for them. They just know the goldfish died and it's not here anymore, or, or they might have lost a grandparent. My father died long before my daughter was born. You know, we told her, look, you had this other, you know, so he had, she had a living grandpa and she had this grandpa who had died and she was literally crying about it at age three. So she had some sense, but she didn't have, it didn't dawn her quite yet, right? She wasn't self-reflective enough to fully realize that that's going to be me. That, that tends to happen between seven and 11. And we don't, you know, we don't know much about, you know, because kids obviously are not that articulate about articulating their, their thoughts. And of course, you're not like right there at that moment to follow them. So I, I don't think we know a heck of a lot about it, except that you tend to see more primitive, simple defenses when kids are younger, and then the defense gets a little more complex as you get older. And of course, 
just as as you two probably do. Sometimes it's well that I don't have to worry about that now. That that's for later down the road. I don't think that that's an entire defense, but I think it's at the surface level. That's certainly a way to defend. Not me. Not now. I'm healthy. I'm young. You know, not a problem for a long time. That's not a full answer to, to how people defend, but it's part of how, how they do it. And I think terror management theory is about sort of the other part of how we cope with the awareness. So I can, yeah, I can go into that now if you want. And yeah, the theory was, was developed based on our reading of, of Becker and some other people who Becker was influenced by. It was my buddies, uh, Sheldon and Tom. We'd all left Kansas by the time we ran into Becker. But we'd get together and sit there and say, you know, this guy's making sense. He's making sense of stuff that nobody else is making sense of. How do we put this together in a way that we can convey to the scientific community? So we struggled with that for a while. And eventually we came up with what is now called terror management theory. And and I'm the one who I came up with the name. A lot of our colleagues hate the name. Oh, really? Why? I don't know. They, I think they, they think it's too dramatic or something, or, uh, you know, they think it misleads people. And actually, there was one time that uh, Sheldon was invited to a conference, I think it's in Spain or somewhere in Europe, with a bunch of politicians and military people about terrorism. Some people think, link it to terrorism, and it is a link to terrorism, but not in quite the way that people think it is. Basically, what the theory is saying is that Because we're animals, we're physiologically, biologically predisposed to want to continue going. So just as if you try to put a worm on a hook, it struggles not to be on that hook. If you find a rat in your closet and you try to kill it, it's going to do whatever it can to survive. But we have that inside us as well. The problem we humans have that a rat and a worm probably don't have is we are smart enough to think about the future and to understand that no matter what we do, sooner or later, we are going to die. So we're, we're kind of biologically supposed to keep going and not to die, to keep breathing, keep living, keep eating. But our cerebral cortex is developed at a point where we recognize that ultimately those goals will be thwarted. And not only is it inevitable, but it can also, it can happen for a host of reasons, right? We can be safe in our, in our bed at night and just freak out, or you can feel a lump on your neck and say, oh, what the hell is that? So we have this tremendous capacity to worry about death that we would argue most other species are spared. And so, so a Becker positive was, well, you know, how do we cope with that? You know, how do we function at all? knowing that the only inevitable future event in our lives is our own death. That's got to be a tremendous burden, and it's got to create a lot of anxiety and potential terror. And he used the term terror. And he said, look, if you're on an airplane and it suddenly jolts or there's a loud noise, he, he used the example in denial of death of there was a, a backfiring of the engine, so this loud noise that was on a plane. Everybody freaking panicked. People start jumping up, crawling over each other. That's terror. And he's saying that it's within us to experience that at any moment. We're not experiencing it most of the time. But when, those, you know, when it's imminent, we experience it. So we know it's there. 
And his thing is, well, why don't we experience it more? Because we know it's going to happen anyway. We just don't know when. So how do we cope with that? And you know, I think the way to think about it is, in a sense, from a cultural evolution perspective, there was some point in the evolution of our ancestors when we got smart enough to understand that we're going to die. And in fact, there's a, a great evolutionary philosopher named Suzanne Langer who argued that the most threatening thing was realizing that, you know, back in ancient times, even if you don't get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger or you don't fall off a cliff or you don't starve to death, even if you live a long life, just old age is going to get you eventually. When you recognize that, then you recognize the inevitability. And Langer argued that, that that changed everything. And so what we think happened is when our ancestors got smart enough to figure this out, we had to somehow cope with that. I'm not going to go out and hunt a woolly mammoth if I think that death is the end. And so cultures had to develop ways of conceptualizing reality that helped to quell the anxiety, the potential terror that the awareness of death created in our ancestors. And so cultures that were successful were ones that successfully quelled that anxiety by creating a worldview, a story about what life is, what it's about, what death is, what that's about, that would give us comfort and allow us to function securely in the world rather than being essentially freaked out all the time. It seems pretty clear that every ancient culture did not believe that death was the end. If you look at the oldest evidence we have of burial rituals and that sort of stuff, you see belief in some kind of continuance, some kind of afterlife. And so that was the initial fundamental way that cultures allowed us to feel okay about death because they saw death as not the end. In some cultures, death is you know, like this life is like some middle period between earlier lives and later lives. And that helps to quell the anxiety. Now, an interesting thing is that the first known written story is called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it's about a number of things, but one of the main things it's about is this king named Gilgamesh trying to cope with the awareness of death and that he's he's fated to die. And so what he tries to do is he tries to cope with it in three ways. And I would argue that we're still doing the same thing Gilgamesh did. Uh, one way was to try and biologically not die. So he tries to look for a plant that could grant immortality. He also tries to get in the good graces of the gods, right, in hopes that the gods could grant immortality. And the Third thing, he gets, he gets pretty frustrated with those two approaches. They don't work out that well for him. And he ends up to say, well, people are going to remember me. I'm going to build monuments. I'm going to do great things, and I'm going to be remembered. And that's the third way to feel immortal. That's symbolic immortality. That's like something about me is going to continue and last. And interestingly, in Gilgamesh's case, it's true, because we're talking about Gilgamesh, about 5,000 years later. So the problem of death can be seen in the oldest known written story. And so it's been with us a long time. And the answer is also in the story is we can try to, we can try to extend our lives. 
through biological means. We can believe in an afterlife and a spirit world. And we can try to make a mark, some kind of mark that's lasting, that gives us a sense that something about us will continue beyond our individual life. And so terror management theory is arguing that a lot of our behavior, a lot of the things we're trying to do in our lives, a lot of our goals are ultimately guided toward sustaining faith in a worldview that gives us the hope of one of these kinds of immortality and trying to live up to the standards of value within the context of that worldview that allows us to qualify for that kind of immortality. So if you're a Christian, you want to strive to be a good Christian so you qualify for heaven. If you're not religious, but you you'd be driven to have some kind of symbolic immortality, have a building named after you, come up with some scientific achievement, some artistic accomplishment, uh, have children and have them pass on your name and your values and remember you. So all of these different ways of leaving a legacy are part of this symbolic immortality. And so what Becker and what we've argued is that when you look at people's behavior and why they strive for self-worth and try to protect it as much as possible. This is a way to answer that because we're all trying to make some kind of permanent mark and qualify for whatever sense of transcendence of death our worldview provides for us. The other thing that's really interesting, and he really pointed this out in his first book, The Birth and Death of Meaning, is that if our worldview provides us with a meaningful conception of reality that allows us to feel that we can transcend our own death in some way, then we have to sustain faith in that worldview to have that psychological security of feeling like we'll continue in some way beyond death. And he says, look, the problem that that raises is that different groups have different worldviews. And so one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, we see so much in a group conflict and so much negativity toward other groups is that if they have a different worldview than ours, they're either explicitly or implicitly suggesting that ours might be wrong. And that's threatening, right? Because that threatens to undermine our basis of feeling transcendent of death. So if my God is BS or my way of gaining symbolic immortality is viewed as nonsense by some other group, that's a deep threat to me. So I'm going to say, no, I'm right, they're wrong, they're stupid or evil. And so what Becker says in Birth, Death, and Meaning, his first book, is other cultures are always a potential menace to one's own because they have this different worldview, which suggests that yours may not be Right. Yours needs to be right for you to be able to function securely and know how to feel good about yourself in a world and feel like something about you will transcend your own death. And that's basically terror management theory. And so it has implications for all sorts of kinds of uh, social behaviors that we, we all engage in. How is it beneficial for someone to even think about, I guess, the idea of death? Should I be embracing mortality salience, the idea that death is inevitable? Does it give me any benefits or is it just causing me more fear? That's a question that we can talk about, we can speculate about. Like most things in life, the answer is always going to be somewhere in between, right? 
that thinking about your mortality too much is bad for you. So people who are high in death anxiety tend to have all sorts of problems. If you look at people's psychological disorder, typical psychological anxiety disorders, depression, schizophrenia, people with those disorders tend to have a lot of death anxiety, tend to think about death more than the average person does. If you don't think about it enough, that can also create problems because we all know it. So it's not like because you're not consciously thinking about it, it's not affecting you. It's still affecting you. If you never think about it consciously, in a sense, it's driving you without your awareness that it is. And when it drives you without your awareness that it is, you kind of, you're driven in kind of a, an ignorant way, in a way that you, you don't really fully understand your own motivations and you don't understand other people's motivations if you never consciously think about it. So the answer is somewhere in between, and it might vary a little bit with different people, right? So some people are more self-analytic and more capable of thinking about death in a way that's constructive. Other people are a little more denial-oriented and may function better if you don't bring it up too much. There's no easy to answer to that, but I would say, like, personally, when I read Becker and he made me think about it more consciously, I think that it was uh, ultimately good for me in, uh, I think it helped make me a better person, more understanding of myself and of other people, a little more humble. Before I read Becker, I was kind of uh, very big on honesty and telling you what I think all the time. You know, if somebody had beliefs I thought were BS, I would call them out on it. And after I read Becker, I was like, wait a minute, everybody's beliefs are BS. <laughs> BS is helping them cope and function okay in a world. As long as somebody else's worldview, right? All worldviews are largely fictional and illusory. As long as somebody's worldview is not hurting them and is not leading them to hurt other people, then leave it alone. It doesn't matter if, if, you, if you think it's right. So give you an example. I had a friend who joined a cult. It's one of these Northern California cults. And I was like, there's this young woman. Uh, I was in grad school at the time. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? This is stupid. They're going to give you a new name. They're going to tell you how much they love you. They're just going to take your money. Blah, blah, blah. You know, the usual stuff you might say to somebody if you didn't want them to join a cult. The truth was she was miserable. She wasn't getting a sense of meaning or a sense of personal value from the mainstream worldview that she was part of. And so at the time, it was probably a good thing for her. And so if I had read Becker, you know, before that, I would not have attacked her in that way. I would have been more understanding of it. And I would have realized that, you know what, this might be what's best for her in her situation. And again, it wasn't a cult that says that you should eat children and stuff. You know? <laughs> it wasn't like a dangerous cult that had beliefs that could lead to harm to others. So then whatever. And so it made me more, you know, it made me more open to religious belief and spiritual beliefs and uh, recognizing that, that, yes, I can deconstruct anybody else's worldview, but mine can be deconstructed as well. And that deconstructing someone's worldview without giving them a good replacement is 
destructive, not constructive. So I think it made me more compassionate and hopefully a better, a better friend. And by the way, Otto Rock was kind of the, one of the first people to really kind of make this point within psychology. He was a, a great disciple of Freud's. Freud had three really brilliant disciples, Adler, Jung, and Rock. And Rock was the one who first kind of came to the conclusion that the problem with psychoanalysis wasn't that it's wrong, but rather that when you go back and analyze why you became the way you became and your relationship with your parents and how all of that emerged, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff is, is, is actually probably right. But what Ron came to the conclusion that, but unraveling all of that doesn't provide an answer. And in fact, he, he has a, a cool quote that, that psychology is a preponderantly negative and disintegrating ideology. And that's the last thing people need. They need something to believe in. They need a worldview that imbues life with meaning and them with a sense of purpose and value. So he developed his own therapy that wasn't so deconstructing in its approach because he understood that that's not really going to be helpful. Now, occasionally, what Yalom, an existential psychotherapist, would say is that there are times when you have to help somebody deconstruct their own worldview if it's being harmful to themselves, if it's blocking them in some ways. But you'd, you'd also want to guide them gently toward developing in a sense, their own worldview, using their own creativity to develop a worldview that's more conducive to them having an enjoyable and satisfying life. Sorry, Jeff, I don't mean to interrupt, but you mentioned, first of all, I'm glad that you're not inflicting cognitive dissonance on everyone by ruining the worldviews. I'll do it for fun sometimes, but yeah, no, not most of the time. You know, constructively, right? Right, right. <laughs> but you mentioned meaning and when you ask people of meaning, when you're talking about meaning, are you talking about like general purpose or are you talking about some ultimate purpose that people are seeking in terms of their worldview? So Becker's first book was called The Birth and Death of Meaning. And if you haven't read it, by the way, you should read the second edition of that book. It's the best nonfiction book I've ever read. What he argues is that meaning is a cultural construction that our sense of the meaning. Of, so I'm talking about the meaning of life, not the meaning of a sentence or a word, but the meaning of life, that people want to believe that life has some meaning, right? And what Becker ultimately ends up arguing is that, that the belief that life has meaning is the fundamental way that we deny death. Okay, Because believing that life is meaningful gives us a sense that there's purpose to what we're doing, and that there's ultimate value to what we're doing. And that's a basis for at least symbolic immortality, if not literal immortality. That depends on the worldview. When you look beyond culture and beyond a cultural worldview and say, well, you know, is there any meaning to life? Why do we exist? It seems to me that the obvious answer is no, there's not, at least from a scientific perspective. So if you buy science and evolutionary theory and astronomy and all this stuff, no. But that's disturbing. Nobody wants to believe that. Uh, there are some people who do. There are nihilists and stuff, and there are people who do. But they're in denial, too, because they, they get their meaning by trying to spread that. Now, Yalom has a really interesting discussion in his book, Existential Psychotherapy, which is another book that you guys should read, about this issue of, of meaning. And he says, look, Schopenhauer, 
the great 19th century philosopher, he spent his life trying to convince people that there's no meaning. And what, what Yalom says is that, well, what he would have said to Schopenhauer is that you know, maybe, yes, if you look at the giant picture, you can make the argument there's no meaning. But if there's no meaning, why are you try, trying so hard to convince people that there's no meaning? So trying to convince people there's no meaning was meaningful to Schopenhauer. So I think that ultimately we, we're going to have to find our meaning a little more locally than the universe. Yeah, I mean, obviously, depending on, on the worldview you buy into, but I think most of us find it a little short of looking at, you know, the giant picture of the universe. Now, of course, there's multiverses and, you know, so there's lots of ways to, you know, create meaning in the, the biggest kind of picture. You can still kind of create a worldview that, that gives you belief in meaning. What's interesting to me as a social psychologist was that a lot of what we do is to try and sustain and preserve our version of how and why life is meaningful and also where we fit into that meaningful life. And a lot of good things we do when you donate to a charity or you give blood or, you know, you're saying this is meaningful and this helps me feel like I'm a decent person of value. And I'm so I'm making a mark on the world. I'm, I'm having an impact on the world that will last by doing these things. We all want that. But it also leads to problems, again, because different people have different meaning systems. And so the problems arise when my meaningful view of the world implicitly or explicitly violates or calls into question yours. And so I think a lot of problems between groups, again, come back to that. And prejudice was one of my first interests, as you may recall, when I was five, six years old. And I came back to it with this perspective and said, aha, this is why history is littered with horrifying intergroup conflicts. Because people can't, they can't just leave it alone. So if you think about how people cope so if you think about, let's say, the European explorers, when they went and they found these other cultures, what did they do? One thing they did is, well, well so, so you run into this culture that believes very differently than you do. Maybe they believe in men should have multiple wives or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of beliefs we could focus on. You, you decide they're just, they're ignorant savages. They just don't know any better, right? Or they're evil. Either way, you're dismissing the threat of their worldview. We're saying it's either stupid or it's evil. So it helps you preserve your own, right? Now, a lot of times they also want to go beyond that. Well, they're just stupid. They don't know any better, but we're going to teach them. So the next step is assimilation, right? So a good way to increase your faith in your worldview is to get converts. Because when other people see the light, oh, there you go. My way is right. It makes me all the more convinced that my way is right. So a lot of the missionary activity and assimilation processes that we've seen all around the globe are helping the worldviews. And yeah, I think that the most, you know, the most active worldviews, you know, your capitalism has been assimilating, communism is assimilating in its time, but certainly Christianity and Islam are religious worldviews that have done a lot of this kind of 
assimilating others into their into their faith, which increases your ability to sustain faith in, in such worldviews. So, and obviously, that's led to tons of problems. It's not uncommon that it comes down to violent conflict, and it's like, well, let's see whose worldview is better. And so you have, you know, conflicts between different religious groups, you know, forcing indigenous peoples to get a education from the perspective of the, the worldview of the, of the colonizers, et cetera, et cetera. So you have all, all of these historical events can be understood as people trying to preserve their faith in their worldview, leading to all sorts of problems. Why is the world the way it is now? I think that this kind of analysis really helps to clarify history and how history has, uh, has developed the way it has and how we're in the, in the situations we are, we are now. One of the things when we first started writing up terror management theory, which is a whole, a whole long story there, you know, we, we pointed to, uh, to Native Americans as groups within, within American culture and Canadian culture, of course, who uh, have been greatly damaged by, of course, the, the colonization process and all that stuff. And in a sense, from the perspective of terror management theory, they're caught between two worldviews. And I think that they struggle maybe more than any other, any other groups in North America. Because, you know, I'm, I'm sort of an assimilationist in a lot of ways. I'm just sort of like fatalistic that, you know, the powers that be are the powers that be. And you just got to do the best you can to make life better for yourself and others within the context of that. And that's partly because my parents were immigrants. And they came to the U.S. to escape oppression. So they had a sort of a positive attitude about, about joining a new culture. Obviously, it's very different for the Native American groups because they, they sort of weren't given a choice. They didn't choose it. Because of that, it's hard for them to embrace mainstream American or Canadian culture, the dominant culture. But at the same time, their traditional cultures were developed in a different time and were tied to the time period, the technology and the geography of that time, it just doesn't work. So you can't go backwards and just embrace a worldview that, that was relevant 100 years ago. So the best I think one can do, and there's one of my former students, Mike Salzman, has studied this, he's a cross-cultural psychologist, is some kind of hybrid worldview that somehow sustains the sense of tradition and ancestry while still being sufficiently compatible with the contemporary worldviews that sort of, you know, control socioeconomic fates of us all. And I think it's especially difficult for the indigenous groups of North America and I mean, other indigenous groups. So I guess jumping back to that idea, of, I guess, how people view death that we were speaking about a little bit earlier. Again, we often talk about how life would be if life were extended or if we were immortal. Two case scenarios, if we were constantly exposed to death, the way we view death would that change? On top of that, if we were to live forever, if you know, older age is no longer existing, would that change how we view death as well? Being constantly around death, that actually was pretty true until a few hundred years ago, right? Your, your relatives would die in your home. You know, your grandparents would probably die in your home. There'd be dead bodies in the streets. You know, there's the, the old uh, Monty Python, uh, was it Life of Brian, where they bring out your dead? Where they collect, they collect dead people. By the way, Life of Brian says it all. 
Have you seen that movie? I have not. I've put it on my list. You need to see Life of Brian. For sure. All the answers you want are right there in that movie. So we know of cultures where death was everywhere. That was every culture until a few hundred years ago. And the way people generally coped was with afterlife beliefs, along with a sense of symbolic immortality through, through continuance of the family line, you know, ancestry and all that stuff, ancestor worship. You have all different versions of it, but there were plenty of coping mechanisms for that. Now with technology, we can hide more from death. So it changes things to some extent. And I, and I think that a lot of the, you know, the growth in atheism and agnosticism is linked to the technological development that take death out of our face. So it allows us to hide from it more. We literally hide from it more, which also allows us to psychologically hide from it a little bit more. I have an Iranian colleague that we've done some research with over the years, and he told us that it's, it's, it's not uncommon for Iranian people to go and visit their gravesite while they're still alive, even lay in there, lay down in it. Very death accepting. Right, they are. But it's because they're Islamic and they have a strong belief in the Islamic afterlife. Freud thought that, that religion was childish, a sign of weakness. But actually, when you have the spiritual belief system, in some ways, it allows you to be more honest and frank about your mortality. So what about the case scenario where if you were to live forever, would we still be worrying about death as much? Well, it depends what you mean by that. Now, uh, in Gulliver's Travels, Gulliver travels to a, an island where people are immortal. What Swift basically says is they're the most freaked out people of all. Oh. Okay, why do you think that might be? If you have immortal life, I guess you'd want to keep it. You don't want to die. Right. So then if you die in a car accident, it's it's a hundred times more tragic. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think sometimes we, we, we can, um, you know, we can console ourselves when someone we care about dies. Well, everybody dies or we're going to die eventually anyway. Maybe they were getting older. If they weren't going to die and then they die from an accident, it's all the more horrible. Swift argued that we'd be, we'd be even more freaked out. Then we come there. That's really interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting thing to think about. Now, I do think it changes things. I think that if death wasn't inevitable, I would think that it would maybe, um, I don't know. We don't know. But maybe it would make literal immortality ideologies a little bit less appealing than they are. But still, I've also, I mean, I haven't studied this, but you know, I've been thought of thinking about this a lot in recent years. Think about when a child dies, a six-year-old kid dies, or something like something horrible like that. At the funeral, typically for most, most people, you would talk about, well, they're in a better place, it was God's will, something of that nature. Think about how valuable that is to the loved ones to be able to think or hope that that's not it for that person. And so, although I think that we believe in these things for our own anxiety, but I think we also do it to cope with the death of loved ones. The idea that if my mom and dad are dead, they'll be back together is a lot more comforting. Sorry, because you mentioned earlier, like about the Iranian people being very frank with their death and that 
just based on who we've interviewed so far, we have a lot of people who are scientists and involved in the longevity industry themselves. And if you ask them why they do the work they do, like what the purpose of their work is, what gives them meaning, their main reason, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sufal, is because age-related diseases are terrible. They want to end aging. But I guess based on what you've told us today, would you suspect that their real motivation is actually, you know, the fear of death itself rather than aging being so bad? Or I don't know. I guess I just want to hear your opinions on this one. Sure. Well, you know, I mean, it, it's presumptuous for me to, to speculate on other people's motivations. But if I was going to do that, okay, so let me just preface <laughs> Hypothetical. it. Hypothetical. I would say that, that, yeah, ultimately it's about death. When you look at at the evidence, older adults are actually seem to be report being happier than young adults. I am now an old adult, even though I am in denial about it most of the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty happy. And I'm, I'm definitely happier than I was in my 20s and probably 30s. I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, with age, you get kind of a balance. You get a little more perspective. Your emotions get a little more balanced. You learn how to accentuate the positive of things, see silver linings in things. Now, of course, that's if you're in good health, right? I mean, health is, is unquestionably very important. I think that these life extension folks, I like what they're doing. I don't think that it will ultimately get rid of aging, but I think they're going to discover useful things about how to reduce heart disease, how to handle cancer. I think that they'll, they'll stumble into a lot of important, valuable uh, medical knowledge that will in fact help people's lives be better. I'm in favor of what, uh, there are a lot of people who don't like what they're doing. Uh, and in fact, we, we've done a couple of studies on this and religious people tend to not like life extension science is what we've found. Atheists and agnostic people are more favorable toward it and men are more favorable toward it than women are, which is interesting, right? But I do think that, yeah, getting rid of, if you get rid of aging, you're getting rid of the inevitability of death, and that would be, that would be awesome. I don't think they'll get there. And of course, there's problems, you know, who's going get to get this technology first? It's going to be rich people, right? And of course, they, you know, they get everything. They, get, they were the first ones to get heart transplant and everything, everything else. It sort of trickles down in a way. So in a sense, I'm okay with the, te with the technological advances because they will trickle down to everyday people uh, sooner or later, but it can create a lot of issues mm -hmm. uh, with who's going to get it first, and then there are going to be battles over, over the technology, then there's the overpopulation issue, et cetera. So there's all kinds of issues there, but I don't think they'll get there anyway, but I think along the way, they'll get to at least ways to maybe treat cancer better, treat heart disease better, and you know, I don't know why anybody wouldn't be, wouldn't be in favor of that. Yeah, you actually just started jumping into my next question. I was about to ask you whether, it, you know, when we ask people what's the biggest problem with radical life extension or immortality, very often they'll say things like overpopulation or the wealth segregation that can occur from rich people living longer and, you know, people in poverty living their short, normal lives. Other than those obvious arguments, do you think there are any other problems that might arise, whether it's like the psychological variant or the behavioral variant on how people treat each other once they're immortal? 
Well, first, let me let me note that wealthier people are all already living longer. Well, that's true. Yeah. Than poor people. Yeah. <laughs> so that's already that's already there. So that's kind of a counter argument to that one. Well, as as I noted before, that if if we had a sense that we could live forever, but we don't eliminate accident and murder, right? Then I think that it might have some really negative effect. It might increase our anxieties. It might make us more agoraphobic. It might make us more worried about getting into a car or taking any kinds of risks. It might make us more severe in our desire to punish lawbreakers, right? Because if you murder somebody and you rob them of an eternity of life as opposed to 10 years or 20 years of life, that's that much worse. And actually, we did do a study about morality and belief in life extension. And it's sort of what we found. We were, actually, we're not expecting this. But what we, what we sort of found was that if you convince people that this life extension stuff is going to work in the foreseeable future, they sort of became more negative toward immoral people. So instead of like, oh, whatever then, who cares, right? Instead of that, it was no, we got to punish moral transgressors because they can rock that boat. So ultimately, what I would want is an immortality where you also can't die by accident or, or murder, war. Well, you don't eliminate that stuff. The other stuff might increase our anxieties and our fears of the things that could still kill us, which again goes back to Jonathan Swift made the point in Gulliver's Travels. And I remember reading it. When I first read it, I was like, oh, I never thought of that. So I thought that, you know, to me, it was, it was, it was a revelation at that time. Oh, immoral, that's, that sounds great. But you don't eliminate accident. It's going to make you even more cautious. Well, I got to protect this. So look, aging has its, aging has, to get back to the aging thing just for a second, aging has, definitely has its challenges. There's no doubt about it. I mean, a lot of stuff, your hearing starts to go, got this gravelly voice that I don't like now. So there are changes, but but people are very adaptable and they tend to be pretty good at adapting to a lot of these things, as long as it's not serious health issues. And then of course, so I think that, you know, I'm sure some of them, you know, want to reduce age, the problem of aging. And I think that that's fine in its own right. But I do think that under, underneath that is that really wanting to extend life as much as possible. I mean, medicine has been serving that goal since its beginning. Okay. So I know we, we just reached the hour mark and we said we didn't want to keep you too long because we could have a discussion probably for hours and hours, especially on Gulliver's Travels. That book is a definitely a recommendation and the movie you recommended as well. But from all, everything that you've said today, if there's going to be one takeaway for our listeners, what would that be? I guess it's that if you think about that we're all in a difficult predicament, that we want it, we want to keep living, but there's all these threats out there, and then inevitably we're not going to, and that we use our belief systems to help us cope with that and to be able to function securely in our lives. Keep that in mind for yourself, but also keep that in mind for other people. And when you have, see other people who have different belief systems than, than you do, try to recognize that, yeah, what they're trying to do is cope with the same problem we all humans have to face. And so we should approach other people with, with compassion. So Jeff, where can people go online or 
find out more about your work, support it, or get involved with it, whether that's a website or not? Well, they, they can certainly, you know, email me. That's fine. I, I get emails pretty frequently. I can point people to specific things, help them, you know, what angles they want to take on it. But I would recommend the Ernest Becker Foundation website where they, they do connect up with terror management theory and other, other aspects of Becker's, Becker's ideas. And of course, there's books. Becker's books are great, uh, specifically three books, Birth, Death, and Meaning, Denial of Death, and Escape from Evil. So if you read those three books, then you're going to know a lot more than you did before you did read them. You know, we have a book, if people are interested specifically in terror management theory, I would suggest our most recent book called The Worm at the Core. Came out in 2015. It, it tries to kind of build on Becker and lays out everything we've learned empirically through our experiment. We didn't really get into the experimental side of things, but we've done a lot of experiments looking at what happens when death thought is close to consciousness, what happens when you remind people of their own death. And what you find is that they, they cling on more tightly to their worldview and their belief system. They become more rejecting of other belief systems. And they also strive harder for self-worth in the ways that they're trying to establish a sense of, of meaning and value in their lives. So the Worm at the Core book explains how we go about doing that kind of research and what the implications of our findings are, as well as all the background. And it goes over the development of thinking about death from childhood, goes into how death anxiety relates to, to mental health problems, to social problems, to intergroup conflict. I think it's a pretty good book. Obviously, I'm biased. <laughs> and then I mentioned Existential Psychotherapy by Irvin Yalom's a great book. Another guy I didn't mention, Robert J. Lifton, has written some good books about this. One is called The Broken Connection, where he talks about sort of five modes of feeling transcendent of death. That's a brilliant analysis that he puts forth. My email is jeff at u.arizona.edu. Happy to field anybody who's interested in these things. I can point them toward these books or specific things. There's also a, a documentary called Flight from Death that's about Becker's ideas and also terror management theory. It's good. It gets pretty deep into death, so you got to be up for that. But it does a good job, I think, as well. You know, once you start thinking about reality in this way, you see it everywhere. You see, I, I can mention, you know, 50 movies <laughs> that get into certain things, uh, aspects of this problem. A good example is an Italian film called Life is Beautiful, which is a fantastic film, if you haven't seen it. Uh, and it's basically about a, an Italian guy who ends up in a concentration camp with his son during World War II. And it's about how he tries to help his son cope with the reality that he's dealing with. We just go on and on. I actually co-edited a book on death in classic and contemporary film where different authors, so there's, there's lots of over 20 different authors doing chapters connecting uh, concern about death to different, different movies and genres of movies. So for everyone listening, if you want to learn more about that list of movies or books you could read, for sure email Jeff. His email will be in the description below as well as anything else he's mentioned. Once again, thank you, Jeff, for coming on to I'm Immortal, your source for all things immortal. We really appreciate you taking your time out of the day today and coming to speak with us. Yeah, happy to do it. It was great talking with you, too, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed your questions, discussion. If you guys want to discuss it, so I'm going to... We'll definitely. Either on record or <laughs> recorded or not, <laughs> we'll... happy to do that as well. <laughs>